Welcome to the Academic Veterinarian Podcast with Dr. Nuno Carrero, where we explore career opportunities and discuss contemporary topics within the field of veterinary and animal science. Welcome to the Academic Veterinarian Podcast. We're kicking off this podcast series by exploring career opportunities as a veterinarian. And today we're going to focus on the veterinary school application process. With me once again is Dr. Jillian Fraser, Assistant Professor of Veterinary Sciences and Staff Veterinarian at Becker College. And she's also the chair of the pre-veterinary program. Dr. Fraser, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's great to be back, Nuna. Thanks for having me. Yep. And if you haven't uh, listened to the first episode, I would encourage you to do so. If you're still looking to um, looking for career opportunities or more information about the veterinary profession. Now, uh, today I want us to focus on the veterinary school application process. And vet schools do get the reputation of being very competitive, a very competitive application process and very competitive to gain admission into a professional veterinary program. Wondering, uh, Jillian, if you can give us an idea of, of what that means. What is that competitive uh, admissions like? Sure, Nuno, because uh, the numbers can certainly seem a little daunting. Taking some numbers from the AAVMC website, so that's the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges, in 2019, there were roughly about 8,000 applicants for about 4,000 seats. So about half of the applicants did not have a seat for them after the application cycle. So on average, I believe um, they, they look at the uh, average uh, number of times a successful applicant has applied, and that is well over one. <laughs> so so it, it, it is something to keep in mind as you apply that just because you don't get in the first round doesn't mean that, that um, you can't keep trying and that you shouldn't keep trying. However, that, that, that statistic really can vary based on your residency and what schools you're applying to. And uh, if you look at those numbers more, more carefully, they can vary quite a bit. So for example, at Tufts University, um, we're here in Massachusetts, so that's the first one I think of. For last 2019, we had about 20% of the in-state applicants uh, were offered a seat versus about 7% of the out-of-state applicants. So about three times more likely you'd get in as an in-state applicant than out-of-state. And then you can look at other schools, uh, your own alma mater, CSU, has it's about 10 times more likely that you'd get in, uh, almost 10 times um, more likely that you'd get in as an in-state resident versus applying out-of-state. So it's less than 4% of out-of-state applicants are accepted, are accepted and offered a seat in that class. So you mentioned 4,000 available seats, and that's across all U.S. AVMA-accredited veterinary schools? Yes. Uh, is that correct? Right. And so how many schools are there uh, that are AVMA-accredited? In the U.S. right now, there are 30, and there are actually that... I think that number may not include this. There were some new ones that recently were given their uh, reasonable assurance um, of accreditation in the future. So I'd have to go and see what which schools those numbers included in 2019. Right. So 4,000 seats. And like you said, it's it really depends on the individual school. You know, the, the admissions numbers can really depend on the individual school. And, you know, we compared we just compared Tufts, uh, which is a private school versus Colorado State, which is a, a public school. And so uh, I think there's going to be some variance there, too. I think a lot of the state 
public schools maybe have a bigger pool of in-state residency seats reserved for in-state applicants. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Versus private universities like Tufts and uh, University of Pennsylvania, which might be a little more competitive for those seats. Great. So where are these schools located? So if there are 30 schools, but yet uh, we have 50 states, <laughs> that means not every state has a Less school, than right? one per state. There's actually some states that have more than one. Uh, California has, has two. Arizona now has two. But uh, there are several states without its own veterinary school. There are some states that have agreements with uh, with state schools. And so it's worth looking into if your home state does have those agreements with, with another school. As you mentioned, the AAVMC website has some great information there. And I'll put that link on the show notes for anyone that wants to dive into those uh, even more. But I do think it's really important that if you are considering applying to veterinary school, that you do your homework, that you look at the individual schools and what the requirements are, what the admission statistics are, because it will help to plan and narrow down your uh, list of schools that you're going to apply to. I don't know what you do, but I, I tend to recommend that students kind of narrow it down to five to 10 schools when they're first looking around. And we can get into uh, choosing the right vet school for you. But how? what is your advice for students as they start looking to vet schools for applying? I think that's a good number. On average, um, most applicants will be applying to about five vet schools. It does get more expensive the more schools you apply to as well. So uh, I, I've heard of a student applying to 17, and that makes for a lot of work and a lot of a lot of expense in your application fees and secondary application fees as well. So I think it's good to, to not limit your list too much early on. Um, really keep an open mind as most students will start thinking about location, which is certainly an important part of, of your decision, but not to keep blinders on as far as what schools might be interested you might be interested in based on location alone. The uh, Vet School Bound Apply Smarter website has some great interactive maps as far as uh, uh, cost of school. And, and that's really something important to think about ahead of time because some schools you'll leave would double the debt. And, you know, as much as you might love that school's location, if you're really not prepared to take on that much debt, you, you might be doing your future self a big favor considering another school that might have, might allow you to declare residency after the first year. There are a handful of schools in states that allow you to do that. So those are certainly worth considering. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Vet School Bound as a resource to help you narrow down the school choice also, AAVMC uh, website, which I'll also put in the show notes, put both those links in the show notes, can, can have some really good resources to, to help students narrow down school choice. Other thing I want to talk about is what, in general, are veterinary schools looking for in a candidate? Like how, how can you make yourself be a better candidate? <laughs> Great. Great question. And, and really, um, there's two parts to that question. The, the first step is to become a qualified candidate. Schools will state uh, minimum qualifications for them to even consider your application. So you have to make absolutely certain that you've met those. You might have a fantastic application otherwise, but if you're not meeting one of their details, they are not going to be looking at your application. So qualifying first and then looking beyond to, to make your, um, your application more competitive. So as far as minimum qualifications go, there's a few different categories they're looking at. And basically it's just, they want to make 
certain that you're going to be able to succeed in vet school and beyond. And so in those categories that they're considering to make sure that they're selecting candidates who will be successful, first is they want to make sure that you can handle the academic rigor of the program. It's it's full-time <laughs> studying those first couple of years especially, and uh, a, a lot of studying, a lot of testing, and they want to make sure that you're prepared academically and that you're prepared to succeed. So the prerequisite coursework they feel is, is important knowledge for you to have before coming into the coursework that you'll need for vet school, but also to be able to show that you can handle the rigor of that coursework. So the prereq courses, some schools, and, and to not just look at the general prereqs, there are some really great summaries that are available on the AAVMC website for each school, but I encourage students to take a deeper dive and read the fine print at every single school's website as far as their admissions requirements, because some of those prereqs have prereqs on them that you have to take organic chemistry before taking your biochemistry class, for example, for some of the schools. Some of the schools want a lab with the microbiology course. Others don't require that. And some of them have minimum grade requirements on each of their prereqs. So some schools will say you must have a minimum of a 3.0 GPA in your science courses. Some might say you need to have a minimum of a 2.5 GPA overall for us to consider your application, but just to keep in mind that most of our successful candidates have a much higher GPA. So uh, you do want to make sure that you are taking challenging courses, taking all of the science courses that they require and doing the very best that you can to, to demonstrate that you're able to, to uh, handle the academic rigor that will be presented to you in vet school. Secondly, they want to make sure that you know what you're getting into, that you've really thought about this career path, that you know yourself well and you know the, path, the, the profession. And to do so, you really need to have gained some experience in the field. And so that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, be able to do a lot of the clinical skills that the veterinarians do, but that's not a requirement. It doesn't hurt, but it's not required, but that you've spent time observing, shadowing veterinarians, spending time in veterinary clinics, spending time in, in all the different aspects, that, that as, as many different aspects of the veterinary profession as, as you can, so that you really can understand the field that you're getting into and how you might contribute. So... The requirement for some schools is for a minimum number of experience hours. Others say there's no minimum requirements, but we will, the more the better, to make your application as competitive as possible. So those are sort of the, the minimum for, for qualifying to get in to a veterinary school. And then from there, we, I think we'll, we'll be talking about some of the more specific sections of the application that can really sort of add that extra polish. <laughs> Yeah, so let, let's go back. Let's start breaking down the components of uh, the VMCAS application. So first, can can you explain to us what is the VMCAS application? What is that process? And where do you go to find that information? Sure, absolutely. So you can go to the, I'm sure you'll, you'll list the website later, the, the aavmc.org is the sort of portal into the VMCAS, which is the Veterinary Medical College Application Service. And there's, uh, at that website, you can get pretty much everything you need to know as far as applying to vet schools. Um, it's a great site to check out. They have webinars, they have newsletters for any, whether you're high school, college, postgrad. So really great information to be had there. You mentioned some of the prerequisites that are required for application. Can you dive that in, into that a little bit more? Tell us about, um, in general, because I know there's 30 vet schools and, and some of them require some courses that others don't. But in general, what is required of the prereqs? What, what kind of courses are we talking about? 
So the prereqs will, will vary from school to school, and it's worth checking into the specifics. But in general, most schools will require two semesters of biology, general biology with a lab, two semesters of chemistry with a lab, one to two semesters of organic chemistry, often with a lab, biochemistry, physics, usually one to two semesters of physics with a lab. Statistics is a very common requirement, and usually uh, we recommend that our students take the highest level math class that they can. And let's see what else, English composition, and then usually there's, there's a smattering of other requirements, whether they're upper level science courses or a variety of electives that a, a student might choose. So again, it's different at every school, and it's important to be looking ahead and planning your course selection accordingly. I guess that's one benefit of being in a pre-veterinary program is that the program itself, the curriculum is built kind of to meet the most of these requirements. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and, we, and, and sometimes beyond that as well, um, that the, the, there have often been veterinarians involved in forming the curriculum as far as what would be helpful for students, whether it's required or not going into veterinary school. So for example, at, at Becker, we've got some, some courses that I wish I had had before I went to vet school, like our clinical nutrition and immunology. I think it would have really helped me out. I did okay without it, but, um, but some, there are some, some courses that I think, uh, while they aren't specifically required at some schools, it's, it's a good idea to take if you, if you have the opportunity. And then, as you mentioned, these prerequisite courses, uh, schools use that to calculate your, your, your GPA, and your GPA is used to assess your, your admission into the program. So there's, there's a science GPA, right? So where schools take these prerequisite science courses and just calculate the GPA for those courses, and then there's your overall GPA that's used in the admissions process. Can you give us any idea of what the expected GPA for a successful applicant would be? I believe it varies a little bit each year, but for the past several years, it's been around 3.6, sometimes as high as 3.7 for successful applicants across the board. And that will vary by school as well. Each school will list their class profiles. So that can be helpful for a student to look at as well as far as getting an idea of, of you know, sort of target ranges for them to be shooting for or shooting beyond. <laughs> right. And I, th I think it's important for students to realize that, you know, yes, it's important to have, you know, a good GPA, high GPA, but a 4.0 is not necessarily absolutely required for veterinary school, right? I mean, vet schools are looking at other things that would make you a qualified applicant. Correct. It's not required and nor is it a guarantee that you would get a seat. Right. So that's the other thing, right? Like even if you do have a 4.0, that's not a guarantee that you're going to um, get a seat in veterinary school. So beyond the prerequisites and grades such as GPA, vet schools also use other things to document your future success in, in vet school. So let's talk about standardized test requirements. What are those for gaining admission into professional veterinary programs? So again, that varies by school. Most schools require the GRE. There are a handful of schools that do not require the GRE. And we have, during the COVID era, <laughs> some schools are waiving it just during COVID as well. So that, that's worth checking out. But most schools will require the GRE. Yeah, so the, the GRE stands for Graduate Record Examination. Uh, usually describe it kind of as the SATs, but for graduate school. Yeah, and, and I've seen a trend of schools doing a more holistic approach to the application process. A lot of schools are, are doing blind um, interviews where the interviewers don't necessarily know information in the application itself and are weighting the, the interview quite heavily in the applicant's overall score. I believe you said that Colorado is, is leaning towards 50% now for the, the weighting of the 
interview. Was that correct? Yeah, they, they kind of go back and forth. It seems like they do something different every year. But at some point, they were definitely considering uh, weighing the interview about 50% of admissions process for, for, for the candidates. But real quick, as far as the standardized testing and the GREs, when would you recommend for students to actually take the GRE and have those scores ready for submission? Most of our students, I, I don't want them to, to take it too early in their college career because they're certainly going to be developing a lot of the skills that are being tested in the scores. But we I would want them to take it early enough that they could repeat it if they wanted to. As far as the latest you can take it, depending on the application cycle dates, they will list, most schools will list the last possible date that you can take an exam and have your scores reported. So that's often anywhere from August and, and some accept them a little bit later. Some schools will accept a second set of scores even later as well. So if you've taken it, you need to have those scores to be able to submit your application in the first place, but then they'll accept a, a later score in addition. So, you know, most of our students are, might be taking, if they're applying their junior summer, the summer after their junior year, they might take their GREs during the junior year and then take them again that summer before they submit their application. Great. And I know, and I know a question that I get quite a bit from students is like, how do I best prepare for the GREs? Any suggestions for that? What do you tell your students? Oh, goodness. I, I, I'm a fan of, of just taking the, you know, practice tests because that will help you with, with timing and confidence and relieving test anxiety. So, and, and that's how I prepared. It was back in the olden days when I had a test book. I just uh, went to the bookstore and did a bunch of practice tests. So it's, uh, you know, I think it, it depends on the student and their test taking uh, style, but certainly to, taking some practice exams ahead of time, I think is a good idea. Great. And then, you know, students should know that there are resources out there such as GRE prep courses that could be helpful. Again, like Dr. Fraser said, just depends on, you know, what you need to help, what you need help with most and in how you are at taking standardized tests. So, okay. So prerequisites, GPA, standardized tests. Uh, another component of the VMCAS application is uh, required animal experience. Can you explain to us, like, what is that? What type of animal experiences count and how should students be keeping track? Great. So keeping track from the start, because a lot of times by the time you, you get to your application, you can't remember how many hours you spent back in your senior year of high school volunteering at a shelter and so on. So as soon as you know, you might want to go to vet school, start keeping track, whether that's just a logbook um, that you have. There are some apps that help you track vet experience hours. So uh, through Cornell, they have a vet experience tracker, a free app that a lot of my students have, have taken advantage of. So keeping track of them and that, that experience tracker will, will help you to divide the categories um, similarly to how the VMCAS application will ask you to classify the experience. So the main categories that VMCAS will, will be um, asking for, that vet schools will be looking for, are veterinary experience, animal experience, and research experience. So research experience is any, any type of research experience, and it does not have to involve or impact animals in any way. If it does, that's, that's fine, um, but it doesn't have to. So keep track of those research opportunities that you might have during college or in jobs afterwards. Veterinary experience is any experience under the direct supervision of a veterinarian. 
And again, it doesn't have to be employment. It doesn't have to involve hands-on. But if you are with a veterinarian or supervised by a veterinarian, then that would count for your veterinary experience hours. And then lastly, we have animal experience. So that would be anything involving animals that is neither research nor veterinary experience. So not under the direct supervision of a veterinarian. So that might be volunteering at a shelter. The, the veterinarian might only be there one day a week. And if you're working with a veterinarian during those, those shifts, you can count those hours towards uh, veterinary experience hours. But the rest of your shifts without the veterinarian would count towards animal experience hours. You may not count your own pet's care. So that's important not to be counting that towards the total hours that you have. So whether it's one pet or 10, <laughs> you can't count them um, with your animal experience. Right. And, and, and how many hours are we talking about? Like what, what are vet schools looking for as far as hours? Good question. And again, I, I sound like a broken record, but it does vary by school. And the schools will generally describe that on their websites. Some do uh, specify a minimum number of hours and others will say no minimum, but the more the better. And on average, our successful candidate has X hours. So a lot of uh, schools will say on average 400 or more hours. Others might say a minimum of 200. So again, you know, knowing what you want to shoot for, um, it, it would be worth looking around at the schools you're interested in to see what they're expecting or hoping for in their candidates. And those are cumulative hours across all the ex experiences, the veterinary experience, animal experience, and research experience. Is that right? Um, so some, I, I, the, for, I, if you think about the, the um, I think it was the, the VMCAS webinar where they described them as buckets, the experience buckets, that if you can to fill the veterinary experience bucket first, because that is often what they require is veterinary experience hours. And then anything else is, is extra. And, and sometimes that's how you get experience with other species. So once you have a little bit of um, depth of experience within one aspect of the profession to um, diversify, whether it's different types of practices or working with different species. And, and sometimes that can be hard depending on where you live um, to find a large animal vet to shadow. But sometimes you, you might have the opportunity to um, have animal experience with other species, but not necessarily veterinary experience. Great. Well, thanks for that breakdown. Uh, let's go on to the next, one of the next components of the VMCAST application, which they require the writing of personal essays, which have, have changed over time. So how, how is that done now? How, what is the application asking students to do as far as personal essays? In the past um, few cycles, there have been three uh, personal statements, which have around 2,000 character limit. Not 2,000 words, 2,000 characters. And that can be, I think, the biggest challenge is trying to um, sort of give them a picture of you and your hopes and dreams and goals in 2,000 characters. So that's, that's I think, what students find the most challenging. Basically, the, the vet school is trying to get a feeling for your understanding of the profession and your understanding of yourself and your potential role in it. So they ask questions along the lines of, you know, what what traits are are, are necessary for a, um, a veterinarian to be successful and what traits do you possess? Uh, what, um, how do veterinarians serve society and how do you hope to serve uh, the profession and, and, and so on. So, um, and those questions uh, are available on the VMCAS website. They've had for the past several cycles, a sample application. So you can view and take a look uh, without even creating a profile. You can see what the application looks like and what the questions are. I have heard through the rumor mill rather that, um, that, they're going back to one question, um, one general question for the next cycle, but I don't know that for sure. And when, when does, that brings me to maybe my next question is, uh, the next cycle, uh, 
when when are these applications generally available? Uh, Great question. So each application cycle is named after the year that you'd be matriculating. So backing up from there, you so if you are not taking a gap year, if you're applying and planning to matriculate the fall after you graduate from from your undergraduate um, degree. In the past, the cycle has opened in May. So that's when you could open up a profile and start working on your application. Usually it's like the sometime around the, the second week in May. And then it will um, be due usually mid-September. So it's been September 15th, September 17th or so on. From there, people will start hearing about interviews, usually December, January, our average. And then generally, it's by March that we have the deadline to say that, yes, we, we accept the seat um, that we've been offered. And then from there, the wait list can sometimes um, shuffle around a little bit right up until the day that you matriculate, which is often August the, of, the fall, of the following, after the following summer. So, but last year, they opened up the cycle in January, so much earlier. And if between January and May, applicants could create a profile and get a look at the general application so they could start working on that, on their um, requesting letters of recommendation, loading transcripts, you know, answering the, the general information, the personal information, the experience, logging their experience hours. And then in May, which was when typically the, the cycle would open, that's when the schools, each individual school, so you could select which schools you want to apply to and then either um, work on specific questions for those schools as well. And that's an important thing to keep in mind that in addition to the general VMCAS application, some schools have a secondary application as well. Some only have a secondary application fee. Some you complete and submit with your general VMCAS application and others, there are additional steps to take after you submit your VMCAS application where you have to create a profile at that school to uh, um, complete their secondary application. So it's very important to be very detail-oriented and plan ahead. Do not wait until the last minute on these applications because if you miss that deadline, it's it's you have to wait until the next cycle to apply. So the key here, the take-home message is as soon as the application is available, as soon as that new cycle begins, get an application going so at least you can look at those personal essay questions that you can start working on, maybe start asking for letters of recommendation, mm -hmm. which we haven't really talked about. So maybe I'll ask you, what is your advice as far as letters of recommendation? Who should students be asking for letters Great. of recommendation? Yeah, great question. Again, it will come down to what's what's the requirement for, for who, but then also who can help you to stand out more. So as far as minimally, it needs to, the person needs to meet the description of that school's requirements. So most schools will be requiring between two and three letters of recommendation, but based on how many schools you're applying to and their individual requirements, you might need to ask more than three. The VMCAS application allows you to request up to six, actually. So most schools will, will require a recommendation letter from a veterinarian who has seen you in a, um, observed you in a clinical setting. Another one, a second one is commonly someone who has taught you in your major or in a science course. And then the third one is variable. Sometimes it's up to the applicant. Sometimes they ask for an employer or an, an academic advisor, or, a, you know, sometimes it's just the, the applicant's choice. So, but those are important details to make sure that you're matching. As far as who, once you've identified people who fill, those, um, fill that description, you really want it to be someone who knows you well. 
So not just somebody who knows that you got good grades, because that's going to show up on your application anyway. So here's an opportunity for them to get to know you and somebody who's observed you either in the academic setting or in the clinical setting. And if you are asking someone who you may have a good grade in their course, but they don't know you very well, you're losing an opportunity to help the um, admissions committee um, understand who you are and how you might stand out and be a really good fit for their class. So basically, the, the, the sooner you start developing mentor relationships with people in these positions, it will give you more flexibility in who to ask. Timing-wise, the sooner the better for a couple of reasons. One particular, if you're asking someone who's in an academic setting and you ask them in August, they are very busy preparing for the, the semester that's about to start and asking them to do a letter of recommendation with two weeks notice. It's going to be a really quick brief letter if they do agree at all. And a lot of professors might say no if they don't have enough notice ahead of time. The other thing is asking early gives us a really good opportunity to make sure that we're getting to know you and asking questions. You know, in our mentorship role, if I know I'm going to be writing a student a letter in another year or so, we'll have plenty of opportunity to have those discussions that help me to, you know, really have a lot of fodder to write about, examples of, of how they've demonstrated certain characteristics that I think help them to stand out. Without those examples, it's sort of a generic letter. You know, it's not necessarily going to hurt you, except that it's it's a lost opportunity to to really demonstrate, you know, how, how special you are. Absolutely. That's some really great insight. I know that, well, first of all, if a student asks me for a letter of recommendation with two weeks left, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely start sweating. And the other thing is, so again, the earlier the better to ask the person writing your letter. And then even if I know you, I've had you in class, I've had you in lab, we've had lots of interaction. I often ask students to meet with me and just have a discussion and have a meeting about, you know, their goals and kind of recap uh, where they are as in their standing in, in the veterinary career and what their thoughts are. So in always have your uh, resume ready. I always ask that from students mm -hmm. when I meet with them, when, you know, just before writing a letter of recommendation. So just that would just be some tips for me too. The other um, uh, thing I wanted to add there was if you're asking somebody who has not written letters for veterinary schools before, VMCAS does have information to familiarize people with the process and what makes a good letter. So that information is available for you to send to or send a link to somebody who, say there's a veterinarian you've shadowed and they haven't written any recommendation letters yet. They might be very familiar with the profession, just not with the process of writing the letters, or perhaps it's an academic advisor or a, um, a coach um, who's, who's one of your, your letter writers, that can be helpful too to make sure that they're writing the best letter that they can. Yeah, so absolutely. absolutely. That's a great insight and something for students to consider when asking someone, like you said, to just give them that resource, give them a heads up so that they know what they're getting into. Something else that you had mentioned, you know, you have the VMCAS application, but that other schools also have their own application or supplemental application materials that are required. Anything that comes to mind as far as like, what does that look like? What are they asking for that's not in the VMCAS application? So that varies. For some schools, it's it's just a secondary application phase. So it's just some money. For other schools, they'll have secondary questions. Sometimes they'll ask, what is it about our school that you're interested in? They want, I think they just, they really do want to make sure you're not just checking the box and applying to a bunch of schools because 
you know, it's easy to check off the box, but they want to make sure it's a good fit in both directions, that they're a good fit for you and you're a good fit for them. So sometimes it relates to your interest in that school. Uh, sometimes there are different questions that they think might help them get to know you better. Some schools will give you a uh, choice of questions to answer. I know that there's one school that asked in their um you, you would pick, they give you a choice of several question prompts that you could respond to, but they required that you did not mention animals in these prompts. Like they want to get to know you beyond your love for animals. So I thought that that was a really interesting take on, on their way to get to know you as well. So it, it varies school by school. It's also important to note there are some schools, some accredited schools that are outside VMCAS. Um, for example, Texas A&M has their own statewide application system, so they are not part of the VMCAS system. And there are some schools, for example, Ross University, um, you can apply online separately or you can apply as part of the VMCAS system. So there, there are a couple schools that you, you don't have to go through VMCAS for or that you can't go through VMCAS for. And that's another thing to, to keep in mind. You might have a, a different set of applications to fill out based on which schools you've selected. Absolutely. So when these schools are trying to figure out whether you're a good fit for them, what, what, can, what can students do to make sure that they are the right fit for that school? Like what tips would you give students to look for the right vet school for them? Looking at the schools as far as the the departments that they have, the programs they have, sometimes there are second, you know, combined degree programs that might interest you. Talking to students, I think the most important thing that you can do um, if it's available, some schools will have sort of admissions ambassadors that you can talk to them, whether they're alumni or current students, as far as what their experiences were there. Um, that can be very, very helpful. Knowing yourself as far as, am I miserable in cold weather or do I need to be near a city? I mean, that can be very important too, as far as um, being able to have that that balance between school and life. Um, you know, school will be most of your life for those four years, but you do want to make sure that you're, you're staying healthy mentally as well. So, so sometimes that means, you know, you might want to be close to the family or maybe you want to get away from your family. Um, so location is important too, but I, I, I always tell students not to have location be the only thing they're lo they're looking at. So that that's that's um, one thing. So then as far as them knowing if you're a good fit, that's why I always say don't write your essays the way you think they want you. Don't write what you think they want to hear. You, you need to be true to yourself. Be yourself um, because you 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 never know what it is they're looking in that class when they're putting together their class, and you don't want to be misrepresenting to yourself, which could either get you a spot where you're not a good fit or could lose you a spot if they, they might have been looking for the real you after all. So just be yourself in, in your essays and uh, and in your interviews, and that that will help maximize the chances of finding the right fit in both directions. Yeah, so look at location, any specific interest that the school may um, may offer you. We've talked about cost, especially in our last episode. We've talked about admission statistics. Um, and I know, I mean, just about every school also puts out kind of their admissions formula, you know, what they look at in the admissions process. So I, I think uh, students should definitely be looking at that. One, um, I'd like to end on talking about the application process and you know after you you submit your application one of the next steps is usually you hear uh, from schools that may offer you an interview can you talk to us and uh, kind of describe what the interview process is Again, it's going to vary by school. <laughs> um, some schools have traditional interviews where you'll, you'll meet with faculty. Some involve alumni as well, where it's just another opportunity for you to learn more about the school and for them to learn more about you. 
some schools uh, don't interview at all. Some have, uh, it's called the Casper. It's sort of looking at sort of your, your uh, personality traits and so on. It's something you fill out online. Some have the MMI or, or multi- it's Multiple mini interviews. Many interviews. Yes, yeah. so they're giving you um, sort of situational, like how how do you um, how do you respond in, in various situations? So so it, it's really a wide variety, and, and the schools will de- will describe their interview process uh, online. So that's worth looking at as well. So it, it's really each school has a slightly different take on how to get to know their their applicants and to select them. Yeah, I know the interview can be quite nerve-wracking for students, you know, and how to prepare mm-hmm. for it, um, especially with MMIs. You know, students are always like, oh, this is not your traditional interview. I know, for example, UC Davis and Colorado State have done MMIs in the past where you might be, you know, they might be giving you 10 different mini scenarios and how do you react to those uh, scenarios. And so any tips on how to prepare for an interview that you may not know what you're going into? You know, and again, it, I think preparation would depend on what type of interview you have. Can you really prepare for any scenario in the MMI? And I think the important thing is just to realize that, you know, if they if they give you a scenario that, you know, seems impossible, maybe that's the test. <laughs> maybe they're trying to see how you deal with ambiguity or how you deal with stress. Um, so just to, to do your best, take a deep breath and, and not, you know, and focus on on each, each question um, as it comes and not sort of be worried about what you did in the last question or what's going to happen next. And I think that goes to any interview, just really focusing and listening to each question, taking a moment to reflect before, before responding. Uh, for your traditional interviews, I, I always remind students, you are interviewing them as well as they are interviewing you. So what questions do you want to have answered about that program? It also helps them to see that you're prepared, that you've gotten to know um, the school and the programs and you've thought about it and and have questions that, that you need to have answered before you make a decision that this is a good, a good match for you. So that can help you to prepare and, and be a little bit more confident. Um, sometimes they'll open with like the general, like, tell us about yourself or tell us why you're interested in our school. So, you know, having some sort of points that you know you want to hit can help you from starting off the interview with like sort of that like blank stare of, oh, what am I going to say? So so thinking about those general questions that, that commonly come up to start the conversation. In my interviews, they often brought up, um, and these were interviews where they, they had access to my application, my essays, they wanted me to elaborate on an experience I had mentioned in an essay. So just you know, reviewing what it was you wrote in those essays. Um, and if you sa- said that you had X, Y, and Z um, skills or character traits that you think will make you a good candidate, make sure you've got experiences to back them up, examples of, of how you've demonstrated those skills. So, you know, I think having having those, that brainstorming and reflection in place ahead of time can be helpful to keep you from being too nervous going in. And then just be yourself and uh, take a deep breath. <laughs> and um, it will be over before you know it. So, um yeah, absolutely. Those are some great tips. I often um, tell my students that maybe just practicing saying the words out loud that you think, mm-hmm. you know, making sentences, practicing out loud with someone or even by yourself, I think really helps. Yeah, a uh, lot of a lot of the the um, sorry to interrupt. A lot of the uh, counseling and not counseling career centers at undergraduate schools will will do mock interviews as well to help you practice uh, just sort of some basic general interview type skills. So that often is available at many undergraduate schools as well. Yeah, I think that'd be a great asset. Well, this has been um, such a, a great time. I appreciate you joining us and just giving us a rounddown of the VMCAST application. Any any last thoughts uh, before we go? Just, uh, it, it seems overwhelming and 
just to do yourself a favor and um, get the legwork done early, do the research early, really do your homework. You're doing your future self a, a big, a big favor. Put, I think the worst thing you can do is putting it off until last minute because it's going to show and it's going to be really stressful for you. So doing the preparation work ahead of time, knowing what the prerequisites are, knowing that you're going to qualify when you open up that application. And then from there, it's it's um, putting the rest of the polish on it, showing them who you are, sort of demonstrating all those good qualities that you've developed and that you can uh, contribute. So the, it's, it's really just to uh, get organized and um, plan ahead, I think will make the whole process a lot less scary. Great advice. And with that, this is the Academic Veterinarian Podcast. With us today was Dr. Jalewin Fraser, Assistant Professor of Veterinary Sciences and Staff Veterinarian at Becker College. And she's also the chair of the Pre-Veterinary Program. Dr. Fraser, thank you very much for taking the time to um, join us today. Thank you so much, Nuna. Thank you for listening to the Academic Veterinarian Podcast. You can find all the resources and links discussed on today's program in the episode's show notes. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, and we'd love to hear from you, so send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes to theacademicvet at gmail.com. Thank you.